three-dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. As you know, every Monday and Thursday I host a live salon for our friends on Patreon. After the pandemic began, I started recording those sessions and posting the audio of our conversations on the Patreon feed. And as of today, there are almost 90 of those recordings that you can listen to over on Patreon. Now, from time to time, we have a guest join us uh, for an interview there, and those sessions I usually podcast, which is the case today. In just a moment, you'll hear my co-host for these live salons, Charles Costas, lead our discussion. In fact, this was the only live salon that I haven't participated in myself, but (laughs) it wasn't for want of trying. Earlier in the week, uh, we had a lightning strike literally next door. And uh, at the time, I was Zooming with Charles when all of our electricity suddenly went out. We've recovered now, uh, except for a few computer problems, like the fact that I still haven't been able to access the latest version of my new book. (laughs) But uh, that's another story. What happened for our live salon is that my audio wasn't working. They could hear me, but I couldn't hear what they were saying. Uh, Well, so I just stepped back and uh, let Charles take charge. Now, for the uh, very first time, I'm going to be able to listen to a podcast from the salon right along with you. (laughs) So, uh, well, this should be fun. Now, here's Charles. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get started, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming out this evening. Uh, we have a special guest here in the salon tonight. It's um, my pleasure to welcome uh, Clem Goldberg. Uh, Clement Hill Goldberg is a queer and non-binary trans award-winning multidisciplinary artist, director, and animator. Sharp-eyed readers will recall their appearance in The Wild Kindness by Bette Williams, including in one of the book's more pivotal uh, journey scenes. Their satirical yet hopeful projects center collective grief rooted in cultural crisis, cultural climate crisis, cultural erasure, displacement, and end-stage capitalism. Their work has been exhibited at numerous venues, including the Red Cat Theater, Vortex Rep, Berkeley Art Museum, and PFA in Berkeley, as well as uh, 50 international film and arts festivals, including Frameline, Outfest, Mix NYC, and others. Uh, Clement received an MFA in art practice and a graduate certificate in new media studies from the University of California, Berkeley. So uh, it's a pleasure to welcome them this evening to talk about their work in psychedelic film. And uh, Clem, I guess the key question for me is what came first, psychedelics or filmmaking? Um, Psychedelics. Well, wait, no, wait, that might not be true. Um, Hmm. I think filmmaking actually came first. Um, because I was sort of, I grew up surrounded by, um, video equipment because of my, um, my grandfather was really into it and was kind of, um, a film pirate and had a film pirate business. And so he had like cameras around. And so I, I did, um, make little videos and have access to that kind of stuff, but psychedelics, um, I mean, the first time I took acid was when I was 14. Um, And so that was pretty life changing. And then, um, and so I was obviously not a professional filmmaker at that time. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, I mean, I continued to make little movies and things like that 
Um, and then I think they just kind of went hand in hand at a certain point. And when you say pirate film, so what, what, what does that mean exactly that your grandfather was involved in? This sounds, uh, this sounds tantalizingly illegal. It, it was definitely illegal. I mean, he definitely eventually got raided by um, the ATA and wait, ATF. ATF, right? Firearms. Anyways. Um, but yeah, he, he basically had a business where he had like st- VCRs all stacked up and then they were sort of recording and then he had like a catalog and, you know, he would pirate people's films and he was um, pirating films when he was kind of had, he was like pirating, I think like Hollywood classics and Disney films. He got in a lot of trouble. Often. Mm-hmm. He was sorry, he was an outlaw. He was kind of, uh, you know, an outlaw influence, I would say. And so did you internalize that outlawness into your own explorations as, as you came of age? Um, I think definitely. I mean, I, my grandmother was the source of that inspiration for him as well. Um, I, I actually am learning. I learned a lot of this more recently because my friend Abigail DeCosmic has been doing um, some research around pirating and ended up talking to my grandfather while he was still alive. And so I've actually learned some some more about the family history through her. And um, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. She had a lot, they met sort of doing black market schemes. And um, so she had a couple different things running. And I think his impression from her was just this, um, I don't know, a real outlaw, just kind of like, I, I mean, I think there was a sort of irreverence built in because the state had turned against her. So I think I just grew up with this feeling. I mean, I think a lot of Jews kind of have that feeling if they have like a uh, pogrom and Holocaust histories. It's just that like that feeling that the state could turn against you. And um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people have that feeling, but it was very much something like that. And then I think there was just sort of an outlaw um, mentality that kind of worked hand in hand with that a little bit. And so you said your first psychedelic experience was at 14. Was it <laughs> so? So tell me a bit about that and, and how it shaped you. Um, you know, I just I didn't know what I was getting into. I went with some kids to a place called the lake and um, someone handed me some acid and was like, this is double dipped white water. I didn't really know anything about it. And I um and so I, I came into it without knowing what I was getting into. And it was this really beautiful experience that um, I did very well in science class after that. I just kind of have <laughs> these very strong memories and sort of understanding, like, I remember seeing my hand kind of come apart into like a molecular structure and and uh, and then reassemble. And I just suddenly was like, oh, right, like elements and particles and atoms. And I just could like see it and understood. And it's very um, easy to understand. It just became very easy to grasp kind of what nature and elements were. So, um, I mean, it didn't stick. I ended up in the arts. I don't, <laughs> as far as like going towards the sciences, but I I have always um, had an interest in ecology. I would say that stuck as well. Um, And then I I definitely didn't, I didn't touch it again until um, I was about 18 or or so. And that's around the time that I was going to a used bookstore a lot and sort of had discovered the beats and then went from the beats to Ken Kesey and like, and sort of followed that 
path to like feminism and other things. So I think through that sort of literature subculture that um, that was kind of um, opening my eyes to psychedelics and they were always very powerful and helpful um, and beautiful experiences. And how did that start to weave its way into your concerns as a filmmaker? I mean, I think so much of it is just my concerns around the, like the earth itself. Um, I think that when I would take mushrooms and psychedelics, it's like I could just hear, I think, the sort of state of things. And I would feel these like calls to action um, and, and felt um, really like a responsibility, I guess, as an artist and as a person in the world, like it felt like a, like a direct responsibility to somehow bring more care into how people think about the natural world. And, and I think that like understanding that everything is alive and that we should give care to a blade of grass as much as like a dog and a tree and to a human like that. It's all very important. And so I think, um, yeah, it was, I, I guess I felt like anytime I took them there just felt like I was getting messages that uh, wanted to come through artistically, I think. And, and also like a very, and with like a sense of responsibility and humor. Mm -hmm. One yeah. of the things that, that struck me in, in your uh, short film series, the deer in between and folks, I'm going to put a link uh, to Clem's work in the chat here. Um, well, first, can you, can you set up what the deer in between is? It's this really cool stop motion animation, but perhaps you can give us a brief synopsis of, of the, of the series. Okay, sure. Um, it is sort of an existential drama that uh, takes place between a pair of deer, a pair of worker deer who are working in the underworld, and their job is to weigh um, the souls to see if they are lighter than a feather, heavier than a feather. And if they're lighter, then they reincarnate. And if they're heavier, then they're eaten by a monster. Um, and on the other side of this is... Um, mushrooms which are and, and fungus which are about to inherit the earth and so they're sort of plotting their um return to being in charge um and it's done through sort of a kingdom like the fungal kingdom so i kind of play with like phylum and kin kingdom and stuff um and so you kind of watch and see that um the deer's own like the deer's role in measuring the souls and like do, are they impacting the scales? And then are the mushrooms really going to inherit the earth? And so you're kind of going back and forth between these two stories. Um, and and what that's was, all stop motion and it's for free on Vimeo. Um, yeah. And one of the things that was so interesting talking about your, your concerns for the natural world and giving agency to the natural world is that it's really infused in that story. I mean, and there's a lot of humor in that story and there's some super rank puns, which good on you for that in that story. But the thing that just really struck me is that, you know, it, it, it was like a species, this version of the Bechdel test, you know, it, it's all of this non-human agency being explored. And, uh, you know, I, I was wondering if you could speak to, how the non-human and this reverence for the non-human uh, impacts your work? Um, I mean, I think there's 
I think that it just, it feels important to highlight. And, and when I was writing it, I really thought the deer were going to drive the narrative, but the mushrooms were very vocal and it was really that they drove the story and they were very punny. It was kind of like, because I would kind of look into research different kinds of mushrooms to sort of bring in as characters. They all were very unique. And I would, and I really would just hear sort of the, their, I don't know, they were just very alive and they, and it was very easy to write the mushrooms. I could just kind of feel their, their drama. And, um, and it was just funny just to think about fungus on the whole and what, you know, like how black mold impacts, you know, other mushrooms who maybe like the golden chanterelle, who's sort of, you know, maybe has a different personality and, you know, is more in, in well regard. And, um, and so I think in that way, it's just all very chatty. I, I think I'm I'm a very chatty animator, writer animator kind of, and um and I think the natural world is just very chatty, um and so I just sort of, I guess I I try to bring that that through, um, and then I did work with a more recent project was around lemurs, um, and that and it was sort of um, a play on lemurs and conservation centers that are like rehabs. So I had lemurs and rehab. Um, and that's also kind of like a psychedelic storyline. Um, but they're near extinct species and, um, and lemur translates to the word ghost. And so there was something very poetic about that. And so that also, um, that sort of became important to me. And I think the way that mapped onto queer culture and I would have um, queer and trans artists be the voices of these characters. Uh, so, so could you, can you talk a little bit about, you were talking about how the lemurs map onto queer culture. Could you unpack that idea a little bit? Yeah. I mean, all of, I mean, I think all of these sort of stories do. I might, the first time I started working with pop puppet stop motion animation was in this film called Valencia that, uh, was an adaptation of Michelle T's memoir and 20 filmmakers each took a chapter of the book and then did a five minute short film that we then put together into a feature. Um, and so in my chapter, I was like, well, I really wanna try puppet stop motion animation. And this is a really good chance to do it because I'll do half live action and half puppet stop motion. And if it's, if I'm terrible at it and I, it's you know a fail, it's only two and two minutes, two and a half minutes that I have to kind of resolve, you know? So it seemed like a good moment to try. And, um, and so I taught myself, through um, books from the library and YouTube tutorials and and um, and some forums and, and interesting people on the internet. And in that story, I was sort of taking, and so it is a, a queer cultural text. And so in that story, I had taken these queers and then turned them into animated buffalo because the chapter that I um, was working on, they take magic mushrooms and then there's also um a scene at the buffalo paddock in san francisco and so there was something about um talking about you know the displacement of queer culture and cultural erasure and, and like spaces disappearing um that also related to the the buffalo that are actually bison so it's like a buffalo paddock with bison and um and so i think there's these like longer stories. I mean, it's really indigenous thought. It's not, you know, I, I think that um, it's sort of, I'm coming to it in my own, in my own way, you know, outside of that. But I think it's, you know, there's a lot of people before me that have had this sort of reverence for nature, a relationship to it and a way of like belonging to the earth that, um, 
you know, I think psychedelics have like definitely opened me up towards, you know. Um, and so with the lemurs, uh, similarly, it's um, there, there just is no home for them to go back to. Like they exist in the wild in Madagascar and that's where they're from, but they sort of have been um, living at the Duke Lemur Center in this sort of limbo state because if they're able to, and they're keeping them wild in the, in the optimistic hope that they can return them to Madagascar someday. Um, but with deforestation and uh, political instability, it's just, it's not that likely. So you have these, these lemurs existing in this like in North Carolina and Durham, North Carolina, it's just so strange. And like some of the species they have uh, par like partnered together and it's, um, and it, it, I don't know, there was something very queer about that too. They just kind of, it was sort of like Muppety and queer. And, um, and so I think these queer narratives run through all these different projects. And there's something about, I think, um, cultural erasure in general, displacement, climate crisis, like there's no disconnect, but I think where I can bring in my own point of view um, and I feel a relationship to what the conditions of nature are is through this like queer lens, you know, whether it's like insects disappearing or lemurs in some other <laughs> city that is not their home that they like were evolving on Madagascar for millions of years on their own, but you know. Now certainly, certainly that places. sense of certainly that sense of there's no normal to return to is now, you know, something that we all live with on a on a daily basis. Yeah, which yes. is which is fascinating to see. And, and also fascinating was that sequence that's in the in the Valencia excerpt is uh, I, I loved how you depicted that sense of discovery of the psychedelic space with your actors and one of the things that that really strikes me in your work that I'm very curious about is that the psychedelic state is such a personal and subjective experience so what are some of your your key guidelines for how to convey that or capture it in such an objective uh imagistic experience I mean I I, I, yeah, totally. It's totally subjective and this very interesting thing. But I think, you know, we all, I think it's those sort of um, similarities, right, that, that people relate to where you're, I think, for the most part in our brains, um, you know, I mean, I think Dr. Oliver Sacks wrote about it really well and stuff. I, th I just think there are these like experiences that we all tend to share, you know, staring at something a little too long and it sort of starts moving around and, um, and so I think it's like those sort of relational things, but I think I just always go for the humor maybe. And so maybe that's what translates to a more universal uh, moment for people. Um, I think that's kind of what I run with in that, in that instance. So, but I, I really had fun um, shooting the scene where they're all staring at the garage door. Like it was very uh, fun to shoot because it just felt like, um, I don't know. I think a shared experience if you talk to people who have like tripped and stuff. I mean, I, I definitely remember a time of like seeing some friends suddenly dressing very differently. And I was like, oh, they did acid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think I think we all resemble that remark to a certain to a certain extent in, in this room. Uh, and, and the humor is a good uh, a good pivot to talk about 
uh, your news story, uh, Let Me mm-hmm. Let You Go. And so I'm, uh, do, do you want to play the clip first? Or do you want to set it up first? I mean, I, I'll set it up very briefly just to say that um, Let Me Let You Go is a film that I sort of came to me in the spring of 2019. I was writing about um, a bar in Los Angeles that really didn't exist for very long, but it was a place that I went to in my 20s. And um, it just ended up being this really formative art space where um, a lot of the artists, like even Bette Williams, I met there. There, um, Vaginal Davis had a night. and I met um, Guinevere Turner and um, Jose Munoz wrote about it in one of his books. And, And so it was like, this very short-lived magical bar um, that went away. And um, then there was a bar in San Francisco called The Stud. And I and it felt very like a similarly um, formative and generative space. And so I was, this is not in the script at all, but this is just the backstory, which I think is kind of important as far as like there are living in San Francisco for 10 years, I just watched so many experimental art spaces, not even necessarily queer ones, but certainly experimental art spaces either have to constantly fight to continue to exist or disappear. Um, and so I think that that storyline and that and that importance of um, a gathering space of, you know, weirdos and artists, like how that was a very important thing. And, and I think accessing these memories, I don't, I don't know what happened, but I went from writing a piece that was supposed to be a very straightforward piece for SFMOMA open space um, ended up becoming this treatment for a feature film that was totally fungal. Like it was just this queer sci-fi feature film, super fungal. And it just came in like a download and I had like most of the film and then like one day and then the next day I like, I had a dream of what the ending was going to be and I woke up crying and I could just see it. And, um, and I ended up, well, open space just got cut from SF MoMA's platform. Um, and then the bar, the stud also during the pandemic had to close its doors. And so while working on this thing for a couple of years, like it was, it, um, it was definitely, Impression, and I had to change a lot of the jokes because they were a little too close to what we were kind of living out. And so there came a time where I was like, was this just like an omen or like, was this actually art? And I'm not sure, but I did a lot of work to create a hopeful ending, which was similar to the one that I, I thought about, but I just, I just realized that we really just don't need another dystopic apocalyptic story. And so I really wanted to create something hopeful. And so I wanted to create something funny and hopeful. Um, And so what you're going to see is really just the first page of the script and kind of a riff on it. And I created this. um, It's pretty much what the first page is, but it's, it's slightly different. And I created this um, because I am doing a Kickstarter for this feature and I wanted to be able to show like a sense of the humor and kind of the world that we are going to be like in but departing from, you know, so I guess that's a very long setup, but a setup nonetheless. Okay, sounds good. So let's take a quick look. (laughs) Seed capital. Seed. Currents. Seed. Currency. You got to get in early. Well, it's still morally objectionable, like a crypto or 
deep sea mining and NFTs are still bad. Are there fungible and non-fungible tokens in the shroom boom, culturally speaking? Oh, uh, well... So, it's this brand new 3D printed earth that hovers above the older extracted one as the sea rises. You know, the earth is 71% water. So you could, like, double the continents. Would you like another orange? Oh, shit. Was that the helm? Fledgling idea. Miguel, shouldn't you be documenting my insights? Oh, um, you're basic... But if you want to upgrade to the innovator package, I can... Nah. I brain train. Nootropics five days a week. Outstanding memory. But uh, don't worry. I'll give you a good rating. Oh. Well, I love how you anticipate how this grand thing that we're all working for can become very paltry. So <laughs> I, I just, oh. it's just, that, that was just awesome. Like, I don't know how many folks have really thought about the reality of like, oh my God, I'm going to be, you know, a trip sitter. And what does that mean to be a corporate trip sitter? Like walk me through that, that anticipation process and what you're putting in here. It's really funny. Really funny. Oh, thanks. Oh, good. Um, always what I'm going for. Well, you know, I think it's just from living in San Francisco for, I'm not there. I moved to LA, but being in San Francisco for 10 years, I think it's like, you just saw the way different things went. And like, I don't know if you just saw scooters everywhere, wherever you live respectively and how the scooter Mm -hmm. thing went. Um, and I, and every time I would see like a certain number of scooters, I just was like, we need a word for this. I was like, it's an embarrassment of scooters. Like what, what is the plural for this? Um, and so I think, and I just watched like tech, like eat San Francisco, like so many people and, um, from the Google buses to everything. So I think there's just this, like this feeling of, I guess the gig work, like really it's just about setting up the gig economy and these and gig workers, you know, and like what, like that kind of anything else would be better than this. Um, and then, yeah. And that near future idea, like what it just really would be like being an eight hour, like in an eight hour Uber or Lyft driver, you know? Um, so, which just seems kind of terrible to be, cause like, who's going to be the client that's going to pay for that, you know, too. So it's kind of thinking like, who's going to, who are these people um, that are going to be booking this? And then who are the people that are going to be working in this job? So, yeah. So, because, well, well here's the thing is like, I, I think, I don't know if this is what's being worked for. I feel like there's the, there is the like worked for like the Michael Pollan take mushrooms on a couch with your therapist but then there's also like you know take mushrooms with your pal johnny on the beach and i think that that's like that's a really important thing is to like go to the beach or to go to a forest and and so i think there's there is a concern that i have personally about taking the ecology away from the psychedelic 
you know, and the, the community aspect of like a casual, awkward friend thing, you know, but not to put that stuff down either, because I do think plant medicine is really important. I just, um, those are the things I worry about. So then I just make it funny and I, you know, make a movie. That's how my brain works, but I'm so curious what everyone thinks and what you think and, and all that. Well, let's, uh, let's open it up. Does anybody want to share their thoughts or have any questions they'd like to share about uh, the clip or about Clem's work broadly? Yeah. I did want to ask Clem about like uh, their influences. Basically. I almost am thinking about somebody like Kuchar or Kenneth Anger or something like that, you know, like classic underground films. Um, but who is really, what really brought you to filmmaking itself? Or is there any, was, did you have a, like, you mentioned the Beats, for instance, you know, that mm-hmm. influenced you. But what were the, the filmmakers that really pointed you to that medium? Um, you know, I think it's like, I think the Muppets had a, you know, Jim Henson and like, had a major impact. I think the never ending story really impacted me and like Pee-wee's big adventure. Um, and so I think there was something about like Rocky Horror Picture Show and and those kinds of things. Um, not to say that underground cinema wasn't incredibly important. And there's a filmmaker, John Grayson, who's this really incredible experimental filmmaker um, who has this film Fig Trees that felt really um, pivotal uh, seeing that. Um, and so I think, I think I spent a lot of my twenties at like queer film festivals. And so I, I took in a lot of, um, you know, outsider art and, um, you know, and, and, and again, like vaginal Davis felt really important. Ron Athey feels really important. Um, and so, and then the people that I'm, I'm kind of able to be working on this film with. So Silas Howard and Harry Dodge had this film by hooker by crook. That was this really incredible landmark uh, buddy film um, about two trans guys that was really impactful as well. Um, and I'm, and I'm, Silas is my executive producer on this, this project. And then um, Zachary Drucker is another incredible filmmaker and she's collaborated with Wallace Sabrina. Um, one of my favorite films of hers is uh, At Least You Know You Exist. And so I'm, I'm working with both of them on this project. And I think it's kind of to like weave in that, that magic and their, their influences as well. Um, thanks for that question. Thank you, Justin. Melissa, did you have a question? I see that you put your uh, video on there. Hey, thanks for, um, I did check out that film before the video, uh, before we started our show here and, um, and then checking it out again, it really, um, a lot together when you said that a lot had to do with the beat service which i am a child of i mean not the beat service but the beats um uh culture subculture and um i'm extremely of course fascinated because that's uh the relations and association of when i was born what and what my father had uh the the when you said you were into used books and my father had a bookstore called the Hip Pocket Bookstore here in Santa Cruz, which um, led a huge movement as well in relations mostly with those guys. And before it turned into even what they thought as a subculture. But what I take out of everything, including what you're promoting or, or um, and I shouldn't say promoting because it's, that's not what you're doing. You're, you are just proving 
um, what we all need is equality in, in every regard to, you know, being human, because that's what we need now due to the pandemic, because it's not that, uh, you know, we're all here now. And I think people are starting to get it. Um, I think that psychedelics are a huge movement. And like you said, with the Michael Pollan and with the meetings, um, therapeutic wise of taking the psychedelics, I think there's a beyond to that as well in the art world. And that's, um, that's becoming relevant as well, especially, you know, with the indigenous people and becoming, having to be respectful for that type of um, world. And, you know, I just appreciate you. I just want to say I, second time around watching that even more so and I look forward to more of your work oh thank you that's really kind of generous and really sweet to hear and yeah I mean the used bookstore was there was just like this counterculture shelf and I think I, I eventually got through the entire shelf you know and then had to like make my own way it was sort of like Ken Kesey Tim Leary Ram Dass it kind of just ended there and then I kind of had to you know find my own way after that um but I mean, I think a lot of signposts were eventually to go to San Francisco um, and uh, and LA as well. So I think um, California has been really good for my my brain um, in that way. But I agree. I mean, I think I had different thoughts about living in San Francisco during a lot of those fires. Um, I thought that was going to be a great equalizer, and then I just realized that because I was like, well, we all breathe the th- breathe the same air, so this is really going to be this great unifier. Um, but the thing I didn't anticipate was just that the, the wealthy and elites would just get on a plane and go to New Zealand. Um, and I guess that's kind of, you know, and it was also, I sort of like in writing this film, I got very interested in like billionaire bunkers. And that was another thing that like in researching that it was like, oh, billionaires don't need bunkers. They just have places all over the world and passports for all over the world. So it's not, you know, it's, um, it is really like capitalism and collapse and, and kind of, um, and so I guess that is the thing about who's, who is benefiting from cryptocurrency and these kind of alternative systems um, and kind of looking to each other and community really into, into, into fighting for, uh, you know, hopefully people realize the importance of public parks during the pandemic too. Hopefully people will fight for those as well and the importance of public spaces out there anybody else want to want to jump in well go ahead andrew trying to, I, didn't, I didn't want the this comment to sound critical like the scene hit very close to home precisely because of how well it was done and how well the you know the words and everything were chosen um i i didn't expect it to hit quite as close to home as it did and 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 all that i could you know do was like fall back on well like you know, uh, at, at least I'll be able to grow my own at home and do my own thing out in the canyons. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The world will be fine. OK. And, you know, so just the extent to which you transported me into that world, um, you know, it was uh, it, it was I was well transported. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I I learned a lot while Bette Williams was, was writing her book because I spent time. And so I think I was just an earshot of um, maybe the political underpinnings of um psychedelics and and so I think it is that like I hope that's the case and I hope that goes this like decriminalization way and that everybody can grow what they want and do what they want I just would hate to see it become this like pharmaceutical only you know carceral situation that the carceral situation doesn't change you know or or 
it becomes kind of a Monsanto type thing or something. It seems, it seems like a, a big moment really. Um, but also an exciting moment as far as like other kinds of mushrooms and, and their role in being able to do so many different things for climate change. So it wasn't just like psychedelic mushrooms that influenced um, this feature script that I'm working on, but it's definitely like a lot of Paul Stamets work and this like understanding of all the different attributes that mushrooms have to like cure cancer and clean water and um, like boost our neurotransmitters and, and like neuroplasticity and stuff. Like there's really just so much, um, I have so much hope and then I'm so in awe. And then there's also of course the Terrence McKenna sort of like out of UFO outer space aspect to the, to the mushroom, um, story too, which, you know, um, I seem, I, I think seems very likely as well, that it's just mushrooms are really powerful. <laughs> I definitely, a lot of times feel like I'm working for them and I'm not, I'm not mad at it. And you raise a really interesting observation in talking about bet and talking about your own work in contrast to the current, psychedelic celebrity which tends to be around researchers and advocates you know those are the names that you see up in lights on the psychedelic conferences and there's a lot of good reasons for that because they're changing a lot of public perception and really putting their neck out uh, their necks out in affecting the legal and the cultural environment and yet when you contrast this with psychedelic history it was artists and writers and musicians that really defined the discourse around psychedelics in the 1960s and the 1970s. And so as we move into this new decade with a more psychedelic savvy culture, uh, to, to what extent do you think the arts will play a role uh, regarding the psychedelic conversation? Or what is your call to action, if that's not too strong a phrase, for your peers in the arts like you and Bet to participate in this conversation from that point of view? I mean, I think Bet did a lot already, like just in the sort of um, in the book that she wrote in The Wild Kindness, like I think her writing sort of became it, it is a contemporary moment. You know, it's a different voice. It's it's her voice. It's a different voice than than was, you know, um, that moment with like Tim Leary or Ken Kesey or the Beats or, or something like that. I mean, there were women that were a part of the beat movement, but you know, it's like, they're not the like William Burroughs headliner, you know? And so I think there's something about like, um, that as an artist and a poet and being able to just sort of bring this really beautiful aesthetic and writing and, um, and, and, and bringing that lyrical voice um, and talking about the present moment, I think it really moved things into a really exciting place that I also hope that there is this um, broadening of who those people will be, right? And I, and I think she kind of points to them in, in her book, like the Detroit scene and different scenes where you have a lot more of a diverse uh, group of people. Um, and then I also hope like you know, and I think the beats also had like a queerness for sure to them. There were, um, but I think like that broadening to like queer and trans people and like a more diverse moment, I think is a really exciting, if there, if um, there are these sort of outsider marginalized artists, like who are like stepping into this cultural moment of um, psychedelics, I think that would be this really exciting way as a call and response to the amazing culture that happened in the 60s and 70s around psychedelics. It would be like a really fun call and response kind of thing, or just like a, 
a new moment to sort of speak to where we are at now, which is very different. And the stakes are really different with climate crisis and stuff. Like we are really in a different time and there is no going back. And it's, it's a far more developed world. And, you know, it's, it's definitely um, needs a lot of artistic attention. If you were projecting out what you want that artistic attention to look like in say five years, what, what would that be? Um, I mean, my hope is that coming out of this experience that there is this revitalized, um, energy and urgency around like art having and maintaining art spaces that are accessible, you know, and that are, um, that can exist and that are not these corporate entities um or that have like these you know that have that there are local scenes and that there are spaces that are um that the rent is low enough that people who are in the margins can generate culture you know and have a space to have a local scene i think it's like we're still sort of fighting back this um this corporate moment that happened following, you know, like Reagan and all of these things. It's like that we're still kind of pushing all of that back. Um, and we're in, and where capital's at and wealth disparity and this advanced end stage capitalism collapse moment. Um, you know, if I, in, in an ideal world, there'd be like land back and abolition and like an and a whole like Renaissance of, um, public parks and and forestry and art like I'd love to see that be the five years that we're looking at is like you know a lot of soul searching and a lot of change in an immediate fashion you know because we don't have the time I think that I had a lot more hope around that around like the George Floyd moment and the public energy that was there and then um, since then I'm just not so sure and I don't know what this sort of we can't go back, but we have to go forward kind of thing is going to look like. Um, but I am excited about like the mushroom moment and like the psychedelic moment, because I do think that there is like a creative thinking that can happen en masse if we can sort of get out of this economic situation and, and really start taxing the rich or, you know, and like holding these people accountable or, um, really making a firm cultural decision that we don't want to go to Mars, you know, that we don't want billionaires putting satellites all over the planet. We want to see our stars. I'd like to see a, a return to the technology of nature. Um, and I guess that is sort of like at the heart of my future and, wh and why I'm making this film and why I feel so passionate about it is I do feel this like real sense of urgency around what happens with fascism and the rise of global fascism and culture um, and the disappearance of culture and the removal of critical thought and like interesting books and films. And, you know, and so I think, um, yeah, there's just a real, I have a real sense of urgency around what that five years is going to be. And I think this election for the United States in 2022 is going to be um, a really deciding factor because it is this moment where um our political system is either going to be gerrymandered forever and there is no getting democracy back it was like we have this thin little shred of 
a sense of of whatever this democracy is that we're calling democracy. And um, and I think if we kind of lose it and it and it goes this other way, then it's sort of this like white minority with all the money and power um, gets to maintain that. And then I think it. I'm not saying that that would be forever. I think it's just a harder. It's a harder fight. You know, it's an uglier fight. And I just don't think it has to go that way. I and think this, that it's like, yeah, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> no, I just, I really think the, I think that, you know, it's like this um, whole STEM thing that happened and this like importance in science and stuff. It's like, once you sort of strip away the humanities and the arts, um, you kind of end up in this moment, you know, you do need the sort of like the art and the humor and the psychedelics in, in a good way, you know, and the cosmic thought and um and sort of the reverence of things and that and that awe you know i think maybe that is my favorite thing about like plant medicine is like the awe that you get to carry around you know i think you need some more awe absolutely and and you know when you look at the dystopian fiction of the late 20th century that were you know that, that that was designed to be cautionary for the environments that we're moving into not you know, dystopia should not be documentary. And so there's a call to action inherent in what you're saying that is giving artists and creative people permission to dream their way, our way out of this, to provide the thought leadership examples for this is what the world could look like. You know, these are, these are some scenarios for how the 2040s need not be a dystopian hellscape. And there's something in the log line of your film on Kickstarter. And I'd like you to talk about the Kickstarter after this, but there's something in the log line of your film about artists merging with the mushrooms to create this kind of new being. And, and I'm wondering if maybe you can talk about what that merging looks like, not only in your film, but perhaps for those of us that are looking to embody a more helpful path forward. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I'm trying to figure out, and this was something I struggled with, with like the Kickstarter, but I do, because I didn't want so many spoiler alert, uh, um, spoilers in, in sort of the uh, synopsis, but so you have these two uh, characters who were uh, working in the gig economy as artists, and they're given this opportunity by a nefarious biotech billionaire to become cross species with fungus um, or not, you know, so that, but, but basically they're told that like the world as they know it is over and that, you know, they, if they want to survive, then they can become cross species with fungus. And then they get all those, those positive attributes of, of the fungus. Um, and so that way they can like survive what is to come. And so they agree. And then they end up being relocated to this uh, refuge site, um, which is kind of like an artist colony um, for other for other artists that have become part, part fungus. Um, and so over the course of the film, they become more fungal. Um, and I guess maybe uh the hopeful the hopeful side of it i mean it it was interesting when i wrote it i think i just kept like and i wrote it before the pandemic and it sort of also involved booster shots so it was kind of this very strange thing but i i kept this like feeling of like well we're gonna be okay because we've all you know had the serum and like it's gonna be fine but but that was just this like fiction in my head you know it was sort of um i just was like all the weirdo artists are gonna be all right um but you know, I guess that's the thing, or maybe, you know, maybe the, the film is just that, that feeling that we could be all right. And, and maybe it is, um, 
I'm not sure if it's a metaphor about like working with nature, but um, I mean, I think it kind of gets into this idea of, um, you know, compost and like, holy shit. And, and that is sort of like the relationship between like compost and death and life and rebirth. Like there really is something of this like mycelium that is running underneath everything and the way that like these ideas and art and connectivity, like all that stuff feeds the feeds the grassroots and feeds the connectivity. So I think, you know, engaging in um, practices that connect us to um, the earth and, and sort of, um, I think, I guess, I guess some boundaries, I guess, I mean, this is not what my film is doing, but I think I'm going into a tangent here. And I just, I just have to say, like, I just hope we can start to have some boundaries around air quality and the quality of water. Um, because I, I think in the same way that developers will keep pushing it and we're watching it all over the, all over the world. I think it's like these green new deals and sort of these, these things, I think even like on a personal level, I think the stakes of that feel really dire. Um, so I am just like, I'm just worried about that kind of stuff. So I guess maybe it is like, taking care of like paying attention to the bees and like taking care of insects and like maybe paying attention to what's around you a little bit more and making sure those like ecological systems are doing okay because we are all in an ecology together and then there's all these like local tiny ecologies there's no separating you know and I think people really especially in the U.S. they just have this idea that we can be this separate thing and it's there's just no separation and I think that that's the psychedelic message right it's all we're all part of this thing, you know, there's no getting away from it. I mean, and if you do go to Mars, fine, don't come back, you know, or, <laughs> you know, or maybe like you just have to pay back, like there's an exit toll and then you have to pay back everything you mined to get to Mars, right? You got to pay that back. So everything you, you extracted, we get, and you can go. And, and that's, and that's such a hopeful message too, that, you know, you, you can have, you can have this this monoculture of 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 the uh, technology, but you got to have your feet in the dirt. You got to meet your neighbors. You got to find that you have your own agency. And I think that's really comes through with within all of your work that I've seen is this call that it's the people you know and the relationships that you build that create this this sense of alternative. Uh, to whatever the dominator culture is telling you you can have uh, there, there there's there's other agency and you have more agency than you know yeah and like you know you think about the 60s and the 70s and all that culture uh, around us and other things it's like the the darker side of it was all the like experiments that were happening from the government and the you know and like the dismantling of the left wing and murdering of of uh, black power. And, you know, I mean, it is just a constant resistance. It, it hasn't stopped, you know? So I think it's just paying attention to like the fight that's been continuing, but just becoming, um, I guess, more glossy and sort of corporate, you know? So I have a question. I don't know. Yeah, go ahead, Justin. Yeah. Um, interesting to know, uh, Clement, what your opinion, when I think, when you think about the 60s counterculture, which is probably the one thing that derives most direct we most directly derive from in terms of psychedelic culture and its visions what do you what sort of what do you think it what do you think those lessons are for us now the things that it can give us or maybe the things that we should ignore versus the things that it really has to give us that we should sort of be pushing forward as we sort of like push forward into this newer era 
you know, psychedelic? I want to say poetry. <laughs> I want to say the importance of poetry. I think, I think love and poetry, right? Is like, that's just what's there. I think there's something about like, let's not forget the poets, you know, and, and sort of elevate that and listen to that. Cause it's, it's, um, yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's like, was my first sort of uh, instinctual response. Um, and I, I think it was like, I think my favorite stuff about, you know, finding that used bookstore is like a little trans kid who's like queer and didn't quite have names for things and just couldn't kind of figure out like why I was so different and just sort of like, you know, lonely and different. And then I, what I found in the beats was like, I mean, of course it was like, the homoerotic relationships and then homosexual relationships was obviously very eye-opening and helpful. And I thought, okay, like I need to move to California. That seems like, <laughs> like I'm queer and I need to move. Um, seemed very apparent to me, but I think like the beautiful stuff in there was sort of this, um, was the friendships were really strong. And, um, and I think, and like the collectivity and the, and the gathering in public space and, um, and just kind of being weird together. I think that sort of weirdness and group activity um, and like exploration of um, art and nature all kind of going together. I think there's something really, you know, and music was also, so it was like poetry and music. And, you know, I worry about the musicians now too, you know, cause that like making a living as a musician has only gotten harder also. You know, it's kind of, these are important. The arts are really, really important. And I think maybe it's because it's like, it is that like sense of reverence and awe and love and connectivity. Um, but yeah, I think those like local artists, local musicians, I think like that sort of like um, band of people that are around you, I think there's something, there's something in the sixties and seventies to that, that like also feeds into the politics and, and values aligning and the, and the fights for things um, that, that matter to all of us. I think there is something about getting together, you know, it's definitely about getting together in art could, and music. Could you please elaborate on any favorites of um, music or poetry? Sorry, I had tears in my eyes too. You're bringing tears to my eyes. Oh, Oh, that's very sweet. Um, I mean, I think if you kind of plow through Bette Williams' um, Wild Kindness, there's like a really wonderful, you kind of come into contact with a lot of um, great voices. Um, you know, there's there's people, I, I love um, Michelle T and Ariana Rines and Dia Felix and um, Eileen Miles. Um, there's a lot of really brilliant new narrative people um like if you start looking into the new narrative I think you kind of open up into this really exciting portal um you know like getting into like Kevin Killian's work and I don't there's a really um and Camille Roy uh I, I think you kind of like go down that new narrative road I think it's just, it'll just like open on to all these exciting voices um I think it's it's uh there's a lot of a lot of magic and and beauty there and at the risk of interjecting, the, the beat poet that, that really stands out for me in this space is Diane de Prima. And there's an amazing new edition of Revolutionary Letters that City Lights just put out. And um, if you really, Melissa, want to get into like the deep uh, poetry of the psychedelic feminine Loba by Diane de Prima is just a masterpiece. Wow, thank you. 
and I'll, and I'll also plug my friend Stephen Rain's book, um, A Quilt for David, which is not uh, psychedelic, but it is, um, it just came out on City Lights and, and it's this beautiful uh, book long poem um, about the dentist that was accused of having AIDS um, by Kimberly Bergalis. And it's sort of a different turn on, on that story. Um, so that, that just dropped. So I'm just gonna put that out there. Right unrelatedly, <laughs> so, so well now now is the time of poetry we're seeing a lot of poetry you know really resurging so i think it's a timely call to action clem uh can you tell us a little bit about i know you've got about what two weeks left in your kickstarters could you tell us a little bit about uh you know what some of the rewards are and how people can support your work and and uh, help this film become a reality that would be very exciting. Thanks for, thank you for setting that up. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, there's actually, it's, there's like 10 days left. It's, it's really thinned out. We have a long way to go. Um, and it's, um, so if you just go to Kickstarter, let me let you go is the name of the film. And then it's under, or you could look up Clement Goldberg. Um, I think either way it would come up and there's a bunch of different reward tiers. So you know, you can, I mean, you can contribute as little as a dollar and that's, that's helpful. Everything makes the, the dial move up. And so, you know, we have like um, the $5, like sort of like a social media situation. And then um, for $25, I will, I'm going to make an addition um, postcard print and, and mail that out. So I'll see, should this be successful, I will see the number of people that have gotten that and that will be the number of editions. So it'll be a limited edition um, postcard that I will make. Um, then we have like, you could have your name in the end credits is another reward. And I'm also offering um, a, like you can uh, see the film is another one. So if you wanna see the final film, if you contribute and um, and then there's the trip sit with Bette Williams. Um, and then also uh, I did for LA people, you can, um, Michelle T and I will come and show the film Valencia in your, in your yard and do like an outdoor cinema moment, which I'll bring, I'll bring the tech for that and bring Michelle and we will come to your yard <laughs> and show the movie. Um, but yeah, there's really only 10 days left and we need like, uh, like uh, a little more than 80% of the funding, but I guess, um, what I understand about Kickstarter is sort of like people really come together at the end. Oh, I forgot my most favorite reward. The one thing that I wanted to tell everyone about. So there is a mushroom collective that is, that's my favorite one. And that's for like the film enthusiasts and the people that love stop motion animation you get, I will um, both share the shooting script as soon as we're done with production. And then I will share like stop motion builds of like the sets and, um, and like puppets that I build. And then also like, you'll see sort of the uh, artist refuge. You'll just get like an insider look um, and access as we go into production forward. So you'll be sort of on an, on an inside track and be part of the, the Mushroom Collective, our little foray. So um, that was a fun one. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, I, if, if you can, if, yeah, if you wanna join us or like share it, if you don't, if you don't wanna contribute financially, but you're willing to just even share the campaign, that also helps. Um, I just kind of needed to go mycelial and quickly and, you know, spread the spores as it were and get out there as fast as possible. Um, and, and then, you know, and then what happens with that money is that I will be able to pay like the weirdo artists to come and make this movie. Like, it's just this little queer ecology of like, um, of weirdos that will assemble and make this fabulous feature. 
um, that I've written and will direct and um, and have these, you know, as I said, Silas Howard is executive producing and Zachary Drucker is a producer on it. Um, so we're in good hands. Should we be able to um, get the financing together to do it? Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Does anybody have any last uh, thoughts or questions here this evening? Okay. It feels so weird to not have Lorenzo participating here. Lorenzo, I'm so sorry about the tech not working. We, we miss your voice dramatically. Um, well, Clem, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing this with us tonight. And uh, do you have any last thoughts? Or, Warren, are you trying to get in there? I saw you unmuted. Oh, it's okay. I just wanted to be able to say thank you. <laughs> this is really <laughs> great, and I wish you a lot of luck. Yeah. Oh, thank thank you so much. I really appreciate it being in conversation with everyone. Um, I'm sorry sorry that it didn't work out with Lorenzo because that would have been really exciting um, as well. And um, and I will say that like my animation is available for free. Um, if you go to clemgoldberg.com uh, and you go to animation, you can watch most of my stuff for free. Um, and and then there's links to like a couple things um, and other than the Kickstarter, but. Um, yeah, thank you so very much for having me. It's really fun. And um, I hope to sort of be a part of this community. And I look forward to making this movie and kind of bringing it into bringing it into the fold and staying in conversation with everyone. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And in, in lieu of Lorenzo saying it, uh, keep the old faith and stay high. Come back. Come back. Thank you. Thanks a lot, everybody. Bye. Thank you. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends.